Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God and it contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, it contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. It also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Glad you're here this week and ready to study some Bible with us. That's what we do each week is take some viewers' questions, answer them as quickly as we can, and try to help you know your Bible a little bit better. Uh, if you're a first-time viewer, you'll notice there's a website and a phone number at the bottom of the screen. Either of those will work anytime. Uh, get in touch with us and tell us what's on your mind. Uh, get a question about a verse or a doctrine or a topic in the Bible or maybe something in your life that's going on and you wonder what's God's Word have to say about that. We'll try to find you an answer. Uh, that's the way we operate and that's all we do in the next half hour is talk about Bible questions. So you direct the program let us know what you'd like us to talk about. Toby Levering's back. Good morning, Toby. Hi, Steve. Glad you're here and studied up, ready to go. I'm Steve Tandy, and we're going to answer just as many as we can today, but we always have one for our viewers first, so here's yours for the day. Uh, we talked about Paul's Jewish name last week. What was Paul's Jewish tribe? Uh, he was a member of one of the 12 tribes, and see if you know that. We'll give you that answer at the end of the program. All right, viewer wants you to explain a little Bible to them. All right, we'll do our best in a few <laughs> minutes here. Explain Romans chapter 8. The Spirit of Christ has set me free from sin and death. I appreciate that you are a, clearly a Bible student reading the Bible. The key to understanding most scriptures, uh, whether it's a certain scripture or a, a chapter, is just to look at the context around it. Of course, the book of Romans is a great theological, uh, has some great depth to it. And so under Understanding uh, Romans chapter 8, I think, is, is important to understand uh, to just back up a little bit to Romans chapter 7, where Paul's laying out here this, this principle that even though God's law is good, there's a problem, and the problem is that I am not good, is that when I try to follow the law, it merely points out God's perfect standard of goodness. You ask a human, uh, you ask anybody, how many would you say people are naturally good? And most people say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. Well, by what standard? By your standard. But when you, when you examine the good that is truly good, God's goodness, as measured by the law, you understand how for, how or you and I fall of good. And that's the case that Paul, Paul makes in at the end of Romans chapter 7. He says, I find then this principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. What a wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of from the body of this death, thanks be to God of Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, 
chapter 8, verse 1, the question that you ask. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of Moses... The, command, the law that we understand were the commands of God through Moses to the Israelites. Had 611 uh, more or less commands. Uh, the Ten Commandments are a part of that. And the problem is that no one could meet its perfect expectation. You'll, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, just live by the Ten Commandments. First of all, most people can't even list the Ten Commandments. The second is, the problem is not trying to keep the commandments. The problem is, what happens when you miss? What happens when you tell a lie? What happens when you disobey your parents? What does the law prescribe for a person who disobeys the law? The penalty is death. See, the problem is not the commands. Those are good. Those are God's perfect standard. But there's only one fitting punishment for those who don't meet God's perfect standard. And this is what Paul describes in Romans 7, that we all have these sinful desires. And some of them... It, the, the, the command says do this and something within as well. Now I'd, I'd kind of like to do that <laughs> or don't do this. And now I want to try to disobey in, in another way. So under the new law of the spirit, the way of Jesus Christ, uh, because Jesus kept the law perfectly, because of his sacrifice on the cross, because of his atonement for our sins, we can now in Christ be justified under Christ, before the law, and therefore we were freed from the condemnation of the old law. We're living in a new and better way. Romans chapter uh, 7, verse 6 says, we, live in the old, uh, we do not live in the old way of the written code, but in the new way of the Spirit. So uh, that's a real high-level view of synopsis, but Romans chapter 8 is, is, is giving us the hope and the promise of the new way of living, not under the law, but under the way of the Spirit through Jesus Christ who atoned for the sins and now justifies us in front of the law of Christ. I hope that helps you just a little bit in understanding. Good question. All right. Bureau wants to know, are there any apostles around? Are there apostles in this day and time? And I understand why they ask that. I've seen some signs up in front of church buildings that advertise the name of the church and all that. And then down at the bottom it says the the, the minister or the pastor or the reverend or whatever they call him is apostle so-and-so. And I've heard of religious leaders who call themselves an apostle. Uh, the Mormon church has apostles, I believe, ruling it. Uh, and the answer to our viewers' questions is no. There's no apostles like there were in the Bible. Now, the trick is, uh, the word apostle simply means messenger, uh, one sent, a messenger. So if you are thinking <laughs> that you are a messenger, in one sense, any Christian could call themselves a messenger of God, a, an apostle. But I'd use a little a on that apostle, uh, just one sent or a messenger. But I think our viewers probably asking about the capital A apostles. Uh, in the Bible, there was an office, if you want to call it that, of apostle. Uh, Jesus selected 12 men specifically to be his apostles, to be his messengers, to be the ones sent. And they're talked about that all through the Bible. Uh, big A apostles, let's call it. Uh, that's separate from 
ordinary people who are sent or who are messengers. Uh, and it was a very special office in the sense that when Judas uh, betrayed Christ and killed himself and was gone, they replaced him. They wanted one more apostle among the twelve, wanted to make it twelve again. Uh, so they talked about how to do that, and they ended up picking Matthias. Now, here's the key. Let's see what their qualifications were when they decided to pick somebody to replace Judas. And we can find that in Acts uh, chapter 1 and verse 21. And here's what Peter said. It's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. All right, so it's time to pick the 12th apostle to replace Judas. And Peter says, all right, we've got to pick somebody that's seen Jesus' whole ministry from the time he was baptized by John through his ministry and has had to have seen his resurrection. Uh, so there's the qualifications for a big A apostle. And uh, there's nobody around today that can meet that qualification. So in that sense, no, there's no apostles. Uh, if you're talking about somebody that just wants to call themselves a messenger or one sent, uh, that's fine. I think it's a little presumptuous to call yourself an apostle, but uh, there's nothing wrong with it as long as you understand what it means and don't claim to be one of the <coughs> official uh, office of apostle. All right. Yes, I think it's your turn again. Okay. I thought I had something to do That's in okay. between. Uh, uh, question is, where does it say in the scriptures for us to worship on Sunday instead of the seventh day Sabbath? Well, uh, when you look at the scripture, we understand that the Bible has sort of two major uh, parts to it, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Law and the New Law. We just talked about with the previous uh, question that how Paul was wrestling with that as a Jew and he lived under the law and all of that. And, uh, and now he understood in Christ there was a different, a new way, uh, the new covenant that Jesus established uh, at his uh, death and, and resurrection. That when we look at the Bible, of course, the old law commanded the Sabbath keeping. Uh, that was for the Israelite people. The seventh day was to be a day of rest, and uh, that was certainly part of it. But what's interesting is, even as Jesus rose from the dead, uh, this new covenant began to change things. And the command of Sabbath keeping is just not one we find in the New Testament. You have to go all the way back to the old law, which is fine if you want to do that, but you, you have to keep the whole law if you want to keep uh, the Sabbath as well. But look at Matthew chapter 28. This won't be on the screen, but if you're following along in at home, Matthew records this. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So even as Jesus begins to conquer death, we, we move from a focus on the last day, the day of rest, to the first day where God begins to do a new thing. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. No one denies that. We know that Christians shortly thereafter began to worship God on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 7, or 16, 
Verse 2 says, when you came together on the first day of the week. Uh, We know that the early church gathered on the first day of the week. Well, why was that? Uh, The only significant thing that happened or changed was that on the first day of the week was when our Lord came out of the tomb. And every command in the New Testament or every reference to when the Christians met together was always, always only on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, this one will be on the screen. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, we we understand that that the Christians met on the first day of the week, and that's the practice that we follow. Um, If a person wants to keep the Sabbath because they think that's required, well, that's okay, I suppose, but just make sure you're keeping the whole law. I mean, if you're going to keep one part of it, you... You better keep all of it, uh, and that includes animal sacrifices and the whole bed. So um, if you're going to, you know, go the whole way, but you will not be declared righteous by keeping the law. It's only by uh, Jesus Christ who, who rose on the first day of the week, and that's why his church uh, uh, worships together on the first day of the week. I hope that helps you. All righty. There are so many people, that are so many of our answers come back to that that the Old Testament's different than the New Testament. For sure. For sure. <laughs> we get question after question where somebody finds something in the Old Testament and they want to take a little bit of that and follow it today, but they don't want to follow all of it like you pointed out. Uh, you got to understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the reason I stress that is because the Bible study tools that we have to help you study the Bible at home that's where they start. That's how important this is. Here's the first set of lessons that we'll send you if you request them. And the first two lessons are right there at the front. The Old Testament, the New Testament. You go through that and you learn the difference. You see why your Bible's divided into two pieces. Once you get that uh, course completed, we've got more advanced courses and you can study the Bible for a long time with Know Your Bible Study Tools. And we've also added some online courses, a great way to sit down with your uh, phone or tablet and just study the Bible, do the lessons, and uh, your uh, study helper will work through it with you if you need some help, but uh, keep in contact with you, a great way to study the Bible. So log on to that uh, website there, oneway.worldbibleschool.org, and you'll get connected to that one uh, online courses if you'd like the others. Use the phone number of the website on our screen. Uh, We'll get you studying the Bible, and you can stay busy for quite a while, and you'll know a lot more about your Bible. Okay, i got a good question about uh, Jewish people. The Bible says, does the Bible say how the Jewish people will get to heaven if they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah? No, the Bible doesn't say how that could happen. In fact, it says that's impossible. Uh, Let's just let the Bible answer this one for you. Uh, First, let's listen to what Jesus said. Let me read it to you. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Thomas asked him, uh, how do we get there? How do we get to heaven? Uh, We don't know the way. And here's Jesus' answer in John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus himself said very clearly, no, you don't get to heaven. You don't get to see the Father unless you come through me. You have to accept me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. 
look at a couple other verses that help reinforce this. Uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Uh, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul points out that the, the gospel was offered first to the Jewish people. Uh, if they believed it, they would become in Christ and they would have a way to heaven. Uh, if they didn't believe that Jesus was the way, then they didn't have a way to heaven because he is the way. Uh, look at one more verse, Galatians, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Uh, Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's not about being a Jew or a Greek. It's about believing in Jesus. And once you're in Christ, uh, all that other stuff doesn't matter. It may be your heritage and important to you that way and all that. Uh, but the only way to heaven is through Christ Jesus. Uh, accepting him as the Messiah. Uh, believing and obeying what he says to do. And getting into Christ. Uh, that's the way to heaven. So, uh, no, there's no way for anyone... Uh, of any heritage, of any background, of any previous religion, uh, unless you understand and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God who died for you. That's the only way to heaven, according to Jesus and Apostle Paul and uh, all of the New Testament, for that matter. All righty, what's uh, up next here, Toby? Yeah, if you're asked the question, what does the word Bible mean? Why is it called that? Okay, well, we talk a lot about the Bible on the program, and most people know what we mean by that, but this viewer wants to know, well, why is it called that, and where did that word come from? The first time we historically uh, have the word Bible is actually not an English word. It's uh, Latin, Biblia Secria, which is somewhere around the Middle Ages, and that term simply means holy books. The word Bible, uh, the, the, the term simply means books or a collection of books. Uh, you might have done where you have written a research paper. Perhaps at the end of that research paper you put the bibliography, which is a writing down of the books of the sources you used to come to the conclusions of your paper. Uh, the Bible is simply a divinely inspired collection of 66 books, uh, 40 different authors uh, spanning a, a time period of, of over 1,600 years. It's a book unlike any other book in that everything that it says is true and accurate. That if you think about all the span of these different authors and over the many centuries, I can't think of a single book. I mean, you take any book that's on the New York Times bestseller list and uh, you know give it about 10 years, the author very likely could update the book because data has changed or things have changed. Uh, the, the book, the holy book, the Bible, is timeless. Its truths are still true. Its truths are unchanging. And it's the only book that makes claims that its truths are divinely inspired, 
We believe it's 100% accurate and consistent with its content. It is a lasting story that stands as the most impactful, lasting, and, and by the way, the most tested book of all time. Many people have tried to hammer away at the anvil of God's Word, but it shows itself to be true and lasting uh, throughout all ages and all times. So the word simply means books. That's why it's called that, because it's a collection of all of these different books. But they're all, even though they're different, they are all unified into one common story in God's pursuit of us. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. The scripture says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof, for, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible simply is God's gift to us of his word and his will down through the centuries. It's a story of you and I and our relationship with God, and now in this age through the covenant of Jesus Christ. So uh, that's the story of the Bible, and that's what it's all about. Hope that helps you. Okay. Viewer wants to know, what does the Bible say about an older person getting married? Well, my first question would be, you define older. I, I, I sense a little ageism there. I'm getting a little sensitive about that as I get old. <laughs> uh, but I would have to know what you mean by older. Uh, but it doesn't really matter because the Bible doesn't say anything about age uh, of marriage. Young, old, whatever, it just talks about marriage as a sacred thing between a man and a woman and blessed by God and uh, talks a lot about marriage, but it doesn't say anything about age. Uh, the only thing close to answering that question I might find uh, is in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Paul's talking about marriage and all the difficulties that uh, people in Corinth are having because it's a pagan time and there's persecution and all sorts of things. And a lot of them had come out of uh, pagan marriages and then converted to Christ and were wondering should they divorce their husband and on and on. And one thing he says in there is that if uh, in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, uh, he, he says if uh, somebody's widowed, uh, he's uses a woman as an example if her husband dies he said then she's free to remarry uh, but she should marry in the Lord Okay, so that's the only thing close to that I could get as an older person who is uh, a Christian and lived with a first spouse for a long time and that spouse dies and they want to get married Paul says it's a good idea that they should get married in the Lord they should marry another Christian and, of course, that's a good idea for, for any Christian at any time, a good rule. Uh, but other than that, the Bible just doesn't say anything about older people getting married. Uh, I'd offer a couple of words of counsel just from experience. Uh, number one, I think you ought to be slow about it. Uh, some people uh, remarry very quickly after a spouse dies or something and uh, don't like being alone and all that. I think you ought to take a little time and think about it. Uh, make sure you don't jump into anything that's not going to work out, but that's good advice for any age. Uh, the other thing is I'd say an older person... Uh, has another consideration, and that's their family. Uh, they should think about the family and be sensitive to their children and grandchildren and all that. Uh, if you're going to remarry after a, a long marriage, first marriage, uh, it's 
just different dynamics. But other than that, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. And old people can get married just as well as young people, I guess. All right, let me take this moment and invite you to visit a Church of Christ near you. We like to mention a few each week that help support this program. And uh, I I ask you to add your thanks. Uh, Here's two in western Kansas, Great Bend, Kansas, and Scott City, Kansas. Both have great Churches of Christ there. And both of them have been longtime supporters of the Know Your Bible program. So we appreciate that. And if you live in one of those uh, neighborhoods, uh, drop in and visit them sometime. Or maybe you know somebody that attends there, just tell them, hey, I saw you advertised on Know Your Bible the other day. I watch that each week and enjoy that program. Uh, Give them a thanks, uh, a little shout out for keeping us on the air. We appreciate it. All right, tell us about angels, don't we? Give it a shot here. (laughs) A viewer wants to know about angels. We do get a lot of questions about angels uh, over the years. Were angels given free will? And my answer to that is it seems to be, yes, angels have free will. How exactly that works, we don't know precisely. But angels, we know from Scripture, are created beings. Uh, Angels in some form or fashion are mentioned over 250 times in the Old Testament and the New. And what we learn about them is purely on what the Scripture tells us. And we're obviously there's probably much more to know that we don't know, but we know that they are created beings. We know they're designed to serve God. The word angel simply means, uh, the, the word in the Greek, angelos, simply means a servant. They're designed to serve God. And to some degree or another, they have free will. They have the ability to choose. Now, how far they can go with that, I'm not 100% for sure. But uh, a, a couple of scriptures for you, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. This is not on the screen, but write that down or look it up, follow along. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So apparently angels have the ability to sin. Sin is a willful Uh, decision to disobey the will of God, to not do what he said to do, or to do what he didn't say, what he said not to do. So in some way they have that. Of course, probably the the most infamous angel would be Satan himself, uh, who was uh, an angel who has fallen and who certainly disobeyed and continues to disobey the will of God. So Uh, They certainly have the ability to sin, and because they have the ability to sin, we know they have the ability to choose uh, to sin. Sin is a choice. Um, Another scripture from Jude chapter 6, we'll look at this, or Jude, (laughs) I guess the only chapter, verse 6. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Jude 6, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, clearly tell us that angels have free will. Now, they have that free will. They were clearly given that by God. Is it the same as our free will? Scripture doesn't exactly say, but there are implications for their choices, for their sins, as Jude chapter 6, for their choosing to leave. And... Um, how all that works out, we don't know. But, uh, yes, angels have free will, and Jude 6, 2 Peter 2, 4 uh, definitely uh, 
tell us that's the case. So hope that helps answer your question. Okay, very quickly, do we know where the apostles are buried or if they had families? Uh, no, we do not know where they are buried. There's probably some legends if you travel in the Holy Lands that somebody's buried here and there, but we have no proof. And I think that's for a good reason, so we don't make shrines out of it and worship a place where somebody's buried. And do we know if they have families? Uh, no, we don't know anything about their families. We know some of them were married, maybe all of them. Uh, Matthew 8:14 mentions Peter's mother-in-law. And Paul said that the other apostles had wives, so we know they were married, but we don't know anything about their families. Let's answer our trivia question. What was Paul's Jewish tribe? He was from the tribe of Benjamin, and that's the answer to that. We're glad you've been with us today and hope you come back next week for more of your questions. Till then, we hope you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.